1940, in the beginning of what was expected to be a pretty long war, John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay, or a series of articles, on how to pay for the war. And it's really worth rereading because in there is a structure, a way of us all being in it together and managing a process of sharing the costs of a great transition of the economy. From a peacetime economy to a wartime economy fit to fight the Battle of Britain in 1941. And when we look at the current energy price crisis, if we abstract from the immediate issues of the supply constraints, what Brexit has done, the movements in global markets, uh, the COVID problems, uh, the Russian invasion. If we strip out from all of that, what we're actually engaged in is a huge effort to transform a high carbon economy into a low carbon economy. And for all the encouragement and enthusiasm and sense of achievement that we have, Let's just recall, our economy is about 80% fossil fuel dependent, about the same as all the other major countries in the world, including Germany. And that's exactly what it was, or almost exactly what it was in 1970. And in the fight against climate change, last year, like every year since 1990, we added two parts per million of concentration of carbon to the atmosphere. So... We're at the beginning of this process, not halfway through, as some of our leaders would imagine. And it's going to be a huge transformation, and it's going to have very big costs, and we're all going to have to share in bearing those costs, as Keynes thought everyone was going to have to share in bearing the costs of financing the Second World War. Timescale's longer, but the scale of the transformation is, if anything, bigger than it was then. So this is a national project in a global setting. We're all in it together and we're in it as citizens, not just consumers. This isn't just about energy as a commodity like any other commodity, you know, from carrots to corn. This is about a basic social primary good which all of us need access to if we're to participate fully in our society. So with that in mind, and looking at the current energy price crisis and the affordability crisis, it's incredibly important to distinguish between the short-term crisis problem immediately now and the need for a permanent solution as to how to pay for this great transformation and the energy that goes with it. Now, there are people who see the current price spike in gas as being temporary, and indeed, it may well be. That's what the Secretary of State clearly thought at Bez when he talked about, you know, most years, four or five suppliers go out of business, uh, we've got to ride this one out, but, you know, there's the sunny uplands beyond that, and the remarkable idea that we were going to solve this particular problem with, for example, nuclear power, which would get us out of volatile and higher gas prices. How quite the Secretary of State knew what those prices were going to be in 235 is another matter. 
But uh, there is this illusion at the heart of the net zero project that somehow we're going to exit gas soon and therefore not be exposed if, for example, we build more offshore wind, more nuclear, etc. Well, if you're going to have 50 gigawatts of wind, that's an enormous amount of intermittent generation power. When it uh, wind blows, the price will be zero in the wholesale market. But when it doesn't, you need a lot of extra capacity, an order of magnitude extra capacity than we would simply to meet the increased demands for electricity they have from transport, heating and so on uh, going forward. So we're in this. We're likely to be in this through the intermittency problem for at least a decade or more. Gas is going to be, whether we like it or not, a pretty crucial part of this frame. And in taking this forward in the next 10, 15 years to get to net zero electricity by 235, and in the 28 years to get to net zero energy by 250, in that process of making this change, costs are likely to go up, not down. That's why I've called this the first net zero energy prices crisis, because the reason we're so vulnerable to the gas prices is partly that we have built so much intermittent capacity. That's a, a good thing per se, but what we haven't done is put in place the infrastructure to deal with the gas, the intermittent gas now, and of course the CCS to back that up. What the politicians are scrambling to do at the moment, and always with an eye to you know, the next election coming up in a couple of years' time at most, is to find some quick fixes, to find some sticky plaster. And if the Secretary of State is correct, we only need that sticky plaster for a year, maybe a bit more, and then it can all come off because the gas price will fall. And of course, all those renewables are going to be so cheap that our bills will be going down rather than up, if only. And this looking for quick fixes, sticky plaster, fits in with the delusion that this is a temporary energy price shock, not a more permanent one. Temporary fixes for temporary problems, permanent solutions for permanent problems. So what have they come up with? Well, it's almost laughable if it wasn't quite so serious. If you think the price is going to fall next year and it's temporary, well, give everyone a loan and then make them pay it back when the price is lower over the next few years fat chance they're going to be able to pay it back. But never mind that for a moment. Add a little bit more in by throwing a bit out of council taxes into the frame and more usefully a bit into some of the warm homes type policies to help the least well off. And that's it. That is how the government imagines it is going to confront the fact that electricity bills or energy, household energy bills are going to be up round about £2,000 and that 40% of people are already under the official heading of fuel poverty, 40%. And by the time we get to the autumn, it's dawning on them that not only will a lot of people not be able to pay, even if they want to pay, but the bad debts will be piling up 
And um, 29 suppliers have gone bust so far, not the three or four or five that the Secretary of State thought would happen. Uh, Those 29 might be joined by almost all the rest because the bad debts will sit there and they'll have virtually no chance of recovery. It can't work, it won't work, and they'll have to come up with some more temporary fixes. And the one that excites the Labour Party, and now apparently the Treasury is playing for, is a windfall tax. Now, the thing about a windfall tax is it's supposed to be one-off, and it's supposed to be because there's a unique windfall, and then prices will return to their normal equilibrium going forward. If it's to sort out the cycle in oil and gas prices, then presumably they're proposing windfall subsidies if the price fall back sharply, as they did, for example, in 2014, and then windfall taxes on the top end. But, you know, all the thinking about windfall taxes fits with the idea this is a temporary problem. Once you've spent the windfall, after all, it's a one-off, or at least let's hope it's a one-off that's being proposed, after you've spent it, what are you going to do then? Because you'll still have the problem out there of the net zero energy price crisis. Windfall taxes every year? I doubt it very much. And as the Secretary of State has pointed out, I think very correctly, if you want people to invest, it's not a good start to say that if you turn out to do well out of your investments, we'll come back ex post and cream off a surplus. So none of these temporary short-term fixes work unless it genuinely is a temporary energy prices crisis. If, like me, you think that the costs of net zero are going to be substantial, if you think the cost of intermittency is large, if you think we're going to need gas for some time to come, then you need to think more long term. And the energy strategy or the energy security strategy was supposed to do that. Embedded in very odd notions like energy independence, and worse, the idea that we've been energy independent in the past, very odd reworking of history. Embedded in there is two bits of a long-term strategy, two stakes in the ground, nuclear and offshore wind. And if that's the sort of energy system we're going to have, and there's precious little by way of implementation in the energy strategy, then we start to construct an industry around that with all the infrastructure and investment that goes with it. And what we're going to find is that if we're all in this together, if we're going to go from 80% fossil fuels down to, say, 20 and then CCS for the rest in such a short period of time, and if in 13 years we're going to get uh, net zero in electricity, if we're going to do all that lot, and if the costs follow, we're going to have to carry the citizens with us. And the thing about energy, which has been long forgotten, is that it's a basic social primary good. If you want any citizen to participate in society, if you want citizens to bear the obligation of stopping causing climate change, you also have to look at their entitlements. Yes, they're entitled to health and education. We all, I think, accept that. But they're also entitled to energy, water, transport and broadband too. And the architects of privatisation, some of the most enthusiastic ones, genuinely thought that what were basic social primary goods, the essence of what a citizen needs to participate in society, could be turned into just any other commodity. 
and the poor would be able to afford whatever the poor would be able to afford and the rich would be able to buy what they were entitled to buy. This won't work. This won't wash and it won't wash for two reasons. One, it won't carry a cohesive society down the long and arduous path to net zero. But it also is fundamentally flawed because the poor will not be able to pay. Indeed, quite a lot of people won't be able to pay. And that opens this new gulf. The price of electricity will not be determined by the cost. The governments of the day will decide how much people are going to pay. And then two things follow from that. Either the better off will pay more through uh, higher prices relative to their usage and their costs, or the Treasury will step in and plug the gap. And I guess it'll be a both of that uh, uh, that'll comes to play. And what that means is essentially a social tariff, a basic block of energy for every citizen of the society, independent of their ability to pay at a substantially discounted price. There is no other way around this problem. You can't pay it out of Social Security, though it doesn't help if you don't increase Social Security in a time like this by the current inflation rate, but a much lower one going back. So we can do this. We can, as Keynes outlined back in 1940, pay for the war, we can pay for the transition from a very high carbon to a very low economy. We can do it in a relatively short period of time, but only if we fundamentally sort out on a citizen's basis, on a democratic basis, how it's going to be paid for. Carry on like this, and what will happen, those costs that people keep denying are going to come from net zero will come, and then we'll have net zero groups, we'll have the far right, we'll have a whole set of uh, people who say, you know, we shouldn't bother to do this. We should just uh, free ride on everyone else. And that would be ethically bad, but you can see that we're hopelessly slipping in that direction unless we have a fundamental rethink, use this crisis to work out how properly to pay for energy. Not rocket science, straightforward, but ultimately it requires a political answer, which is to recognise we're citizens before we're consumers. Thank you.